Now, our Bible readings for this Easter day, morning and evening, are from the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, uh, chapter 21 this morning, 22 this evening. You'll find it on page 1041. Just before we read this, the style of the book of Revelation is what is known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible is symbolic, it is pictorial, it is written to convey facts, but also to uh, engage our affections. Now, what that means is that we are, are meant to respond to literature like this in an emotional way, in a spiritually emotional way. That's not wrong. It's not culturally easy for us, perhaps, um, but it's good for us to uh, not only listen to truth and let it engage our minds, but to be affected uh, by it. And just to encourage you, the word apocalyptic uh, in Bible genre means to make clear what is otherwise unclear. Hence, the title of the book, A Revelation. Chapter 21 is a description of eternity. So let's read God's Word together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me, who had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. Twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, 
while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth cornelian, the seventh christotile, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of moon or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, let's pray that God will help us as we study this. Father, we pray that you would speak to us clearly from your word. We pray that you would do so in a powerful, convicting way, whoever we are, however we come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what I'd like to do this Easter Sunday is introduce a, a dose of reality. I'd like us to think together about uh, the real world and suggest to you that the real world is eternity. And therefore that this earth and our bodies and this life is not the real world. In that, it is not how it is meant to be. And it is not how it will be. This world will die as sure as our bodies will die. Life as we know it here will come to an end. Life on this earth will come to an end. The resurrection of Jesus Christ achieves three things. Number one, it is a glorious seal of approval and vindication of everything that the cross, the death of Jesus, achieved. Because of the cross, we are ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven, reconciled to God, made children of God, heirs of God. Because of the cross, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You could not sing Wesley's great hymn, No Condemnation, Now I Dread, Jesus, and All in Him is Mine. You could not sing that if Jesus had not died. And of course, that's the refrain of the hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Shouldst Die For Me? You could not sing it if Jesus had not died on the cross, and also, you could not sing it had Jesus not been raised from the dead. 
nothing that Jesus did on the cross, dying for our sin, could become real to us if Jesus had not been raised from the dead to vindicate the achievements of the cross. His resurrection is what leads to the giving of his spirit, which is what gives us all that the cross achieves. So, number one, the resurrection vindicates the achievements of the cross and confers them to us and into us. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus achieves the resurrection of you. Let me just say that again. The resurrection of Jesus achieves the resurrection of you. Everyone, every human will be raised. Now, I'll come back to that later. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus achieves the resurrection of the earth. Let me read to you from Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, that's a, a kind of me and my future eternity kind of phrase. But then Paul says this, for the creation, the earth on which we stand, the mountains, the seas, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So the creation waits for the, the resurrection of the children of God for the creation, not just you and I, we're subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the resurrection of Jesus achieves three things. One, it vindicates all that the cross purported to achieve. Had Jesus not died, we would not be ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven, children of God, heirs of glory. Had he not been raised, none of these things would be ours. The resurrection vindicates the cross and confers the achievements of the cross to us and into us by the Spirit. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus achieves the resurrection of you. And number three, the resurrection of Jesus achieves the resurrection of the earth. The third area there is perhaps uh, least uh, appreciated, although the Bible is full of teaching on this. It's not that the future or eternity is somewhere out there in the distant edges of the universe. Eternity is a resurrected earth, a resurrected creation. Now, I suggested to you that this morning we would be considering the real world. 
Now, really? Isn't this just kind of pie in the sky, hope for when you die? Now, that's the kind of preacher's question, isn't it? Like, try and scrub that. I mean, just ask the question yourself. Just ask the question, even if you've been a Christian all your life, and you, is it, is it just a whole kind of worldview that makes this life a bit better than it is? I mean, we want it to be true. We'd want there to be an answer to death. We want to live in a world where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, but that's just not the real world. How do you know it's not the real world? Well, because it's not my experience. Just look around. I mean, just look around. And he's talking about no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Just look around. Even in this room. All over this room. How do you know it's not the real world, eternity? Because it's not my experience. This is the real world. This is the real world of human experience. Let me ask you another question. What about life after death? Do you have any experience of that? Might it be that you realize then that this was never the real world? How do we stop this becoming a philosophical argument or discussion? How do we get from theory to facts? How do we sort out one worldview from another worldview? How do we ensure that this is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff? Well, we look at the evidence for Jesus. Was he God? Did the stuff that he did which he did in order to show us what the world to come would be like. What did he do? He showed us a world where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain or the distortion of nature. Did that stuff happen? Did he die? So was he God? Was what he did true? Did he die? And most important of all, was he raised to life? Consider the evidence. Have you? Will you? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Now, the benefit you get of service two is that I'm able after service one to have these conversations with people. And I was very bold this morning, and I did have these conversations with some people, some in their 80s, some in their teens. And I said, have you? Will you? Why won't you? Why won't you? Why won't you? And at the end of one of these conversations, somebody said to me, I don't know. Why won't you? Why won't you? And another young guy said to me, please pray for me this afternoon as I go back with my family and talk about these things over lunch. Why won't they? Why won't they read the evidence? 
Well, there's a paradox. It's a strange, strange paradox. Why won't you consider the evidence that points to the fact that Jesus is God, that he died a sacrificial death for your sin, and that he rose to give you life and life everlasting? Why won't you look at that? Why will people not look at that? Because I think the answer is because this is a supernatural thing. God's got to incline your heart to do it. Which stops you being persuaded to do it because of someone like me. Or it stops a father being persuaded to do it because their son has become a Christian and they love them very much and they'll just do it for him. It makes it real. Because this is a matter between you and God. Now, I could say to you, here's my biggest card I could play as a minister. I mean, I'm giving 40 years to trying to persuade people that this is real. So do it for that reason. I would stake my life on it, I think. Do it for that reason. Don't do it for any of these. Do it for the reason that Jesus Christ gave his life for it. And that God raised him from the dead. So, on the basis that there is no logical argument to suggest that eternity is not, after all, the real world, let's consider what that real world is like. And remember, this is apocalyptic literature written to convey facts but impressions. Uh, Verses 1 to 4 again, what eternity will be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now, verse 1 is about the new creation. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. These words echo the words at the beginning of the Bible, the account of creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Back to Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God created humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. God created humanity to live in perfect harmony with God and with one another. God created a world where there was no sin and sickness and pain and death. God could not have created sin and pain and sickness and death. And that perfect world was destroyed because of our rebellion. And our bodies, our minds, our hearts, the world in which we live, our experience of life is of a fallen world, a frustrated world, a world under judgment, a life of tears, 
of mourning, of crying, of sickness, of decay that ends in death. And God, from the very first, said about redeeming us and then redeeming the world. Notice the order. He redeems us, then he redeems the world. And it all finds its focal point at Easter when Jesus Christ died and was raised and everything was set in motion to lead to the day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. What about the reference in Revelation 21:1 that the sea was no more? Now, you may be great lovers of David Attenborough's The Blue Planet. There will be seas, I think, oceans and fish. The sea here is symbolic, and all through Revelation, the sea is symbolic of separation. It is referred elsewhere as a great ocean, the deep, the dangerous deep, separating humanity from God. What will the new creation be like? It will be a real place. Will it be like the most beautiful place we know on earth? Better. Infinitely better. Would it be like the most beautiful place in Scotland? Much better and warmer. And no midges. There'll be no midges. There cannot be in the new creation. Will there be continuity with this world? I mean, some places the Bible speaks of a renewed creation, almost like God taking the earth and the universe and renewing it. So we got a new car this week, and there is some continuity with the old one, but not a lot. The continuity is four wheels and a shell. That's a good illustration, an old clapped-out car and a brand-new car. Except in this world, the brand-new car becomes a clapped-out old car. Everything rusts. There is continuity One of our favorite places to go on holiday is St. Andrews, a combination of golf and the beach. In fact, eight golf courses and one beach. One of the most famous historic sites in St. Andrews is the cathedral. And if you walk around the cathedral, the, the stones upon which the cathedral was built, the ones that go underground, you could still see the tops of them and walk along the top of them. And so you can see the footprint of where the cathedral used to to be. And it is like a glorious ruin. Some of the best tourist attractions we go and see are glorious ruins. Look at the world around us. And we can image in our minds, the world God created without natural disaster, without environmental threats, without sickness and disease, without suffering, without death. There is beauty in the world now, but that beauty is marred by brokenness. It is a glorious ruin. 
And Jesus says, when I return, there will be a new creation. I will literally resurrect the earth, the world. I bet you there's somebody here thinking, this really is pie in the sky. How do you know? How do you know what eternity is like? Now, that's not a speculative question with a hanging answer. We know because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And therefore, what he said eternity would be like is what eternity will be like. How do we know you will be there? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Uh, second, verse 2, the new uh, Jerusalem. Just to say that uh, there are a lot of verses here. We're at verse 2, and um, I've spectacularly failed again to get through a whole Bible passage. But thankfully, apocalyptic literature just begins to repeat itself. So no fears. We'll not be here any longer than normal. The new Jerusalem, verse 2, I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. This is not a new vision. It's not a vision of the capital city of the new creation. It's just another way of describing the new creation. Throughout the Bible, the city of Babylon refers to the fallen world, contrasted with the city of Zion, or Jerusalem, the city of God. That's why in Bible history, Jesus died outside Jerusalem. There's all sorts of powerful theology in that. When Jesus comes again, Babylon will be destroyed and a new creation will be the city of God, Jerusalem. Now, perhaps it's a surprise for us to find eternity and a new creation described as a city. We imagine perfection as an idyllic spot in the countryside in the beauty of God's creation, miles away from a city, and if you're anything like me, miles away from anyone. But God's goal for us is that we will not be isolated, but rather be in a perfect community united in Christ. Now, that's, that's a great persuasive description of how our culture is. You can live in London, which is one of the world's most vibrant cities. He who tires of London is tired of life. And you can be the loneliest person in the world. Which is why churches, which are on the earth, local ordinary churches, prototypes more than anything else of eternity, are what? Redeemed communities. Churches should be the least lonely places on the earth. You know that, that when I probed a little further after service one, and don't worry, I'm not going to quiz any of you after this service, and I asked them why it is that people have, have sort of 
shifted away or pushed away any inquiry about the gospel. You know what the number one answer was? Because the church they were in was dire or did something or said something or messed up. Don't let the church or some minister like me be an excuse for you not to consider the claims of Jesus Christ lest all eternity is staked on it. What of the marriage imagery? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Who is the bride? The bride is the church. The church is the gathered people of God. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the church, the bride. That's ultimately what God meant in the end of Genesis 2, for a man will leave his father and be united to his wife. What did that mean ultimately? Jesus left his father's throne above and was united to his bride, the church. When is the wedding day? It is resurrection day. What is eternity? It is one big wedding feast. Here at last is the perfect company of God's people, the church in all its glory. Pictured as a city. Now, let me read to you the words of an old hymn. Some of you will know this hymn. I didn't really quite understand it. You know these old hymns you sing and modern hymns and you don't really know what you're singing, which isn't a good idea. Um, Understand this now, given that the eternity is pictured as a city. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. Savior, since of Zion city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading are the world's best pleasures, all its boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. So heaven, or the new creation, the new Jerusalem, and then third, the new temple, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, let me give you a bit of biblical or salvation history. In the early days of God's covenant with his people, God lived with his people in the temple in Jerusalem. Once a year, one man got to go into the presence of God on behalf of the people. After the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, God prophesied through Ezekiel that he would build a new temple. That new temple was fulfilled in Jesus when he came into the world as Emmanuel, God with us. As Christian believers, we know God's presence in us by his Holy Spirit. You and I are the temple of God. And together as the church with believers all over the world, we are the temple of God. But although we do know God by His Spirit, that knowledge is limited in our experience. We long to know Him more. In eternity we will. In the new creation. In the new Jerusalem. The perfect presence of God with us. And then the final uh, image in verse 4 is more of what we will leave behind. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. I'd love to get some of you up here at this moment who are dying or crying or mourning because there's a lot of you here and get you to speak of how your hope is in a world where that is not going to be the case because with all your heart you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead and gives you everlasting life. Now, verses 5 to 8, who will be there in eternity? He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And what is striking about these verses is that the answer to the question, who will be there in eternity, is everyone. Everyone. All people will be raised. All people will have a physical eternity. But not in the same place. There are two ways to live, believing in Jesus or not. There are two ways to die, believing in Jesus or not. There are two eternities, with Jesus or apart from him, inside or outside the new creation, both physical, real places. The imagery here in verses 5 to 8 is to contrast, on the one hand, and this is the the new creation, the spring of the water of life, which is the heritage of the believer, with, on the other hand, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. We will live in the perfection of the new creation with Jesus, or we will live in the fire of hell without Jesus for all eternity. Do you find that shocking? Well, I do. Yet, is it not better that we are aware of this now than to stand before the Lord Jesus at the threshold of eternity and be faced with it then? For then there will be no chance to repent and believe in the gospel. And it's eternity we're talking about. It's a place where there is no concept of time. 
It is infinite. Nothing we know is infinite. It's finite. Eternity is forever. There is no end. Why does the Lord Jesus not come back? Because God wants us all to have the chance to respond. Many will say to the Lord Jesus on that day that begins eternity, can I have one more chance? And he will say, I gave you so many. What about that Easter day, 2018, when you were so close, but you would not Repent and believe. And then verses 9 to 27. Eternity will be more glorious than we can imagine. Now, we can just touch on this briefly. The vision returns to the picture of the glorious eternity that will be the inheritance of believers And the point of these verses is to impress on us and to raise our godly affections, our spiritual response to the fact that eternity will be more glorious than we can imagine. We're not being told anything new here. Rather, it is expanding, elaborating on the description in verses 1 to 4. So verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Remember what that is. It's the holy city, Jerusalem, the church of God. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It is glorious. It is shining. Then we get a a picture of uh, the gates, on the 12 gates, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, symbolic of uh, God's people, the Jewish people, the Old Testament people of God. On the foundations, the names of the 12 apostles, symbolic of the New Testament people of God, together all of God's people throughout history and the new creation. That same point is made in verses 15 to 18 with numbers, the measurements of the city, 12,000 stadia in length, width, height, the walls, cubits, thick, multiples of 12, 144, a symbol of completeness and perfection. Echoing the number 144,000, In Revelation 7, the great multitude of God's people throughout history. And the point in apocalyptic literature is this. The number of people in the new creation is vast, but exact. The number of hairs on your head more than mine 
just so you know, my haircut was a mistake. <laughs> I meant a number two around the sides. And by the time I looked up in the mirror, he'd gone right over the top. God knows, nobody in the world knows how many hairs are on your head. Apart from God. You don't, have you never counted? You couldn't count them. The company in the new creation is vast, but not vague. It's vast and precise. Verses 18 to 21 picture the glory of the city. These crown jewels like no other. And when you get the imagery there, if you've ever seen the crown jewels in the Tower of London, they are impressive to say the least. And when you see them all being worn at a royal wedding, I mean, they are impressive. They, they do convey royalty or glory. And of course, that's the image here. Somebody on a sermon I listened to in this said it's a bit like Aberdeen. I went, <laughs> Apparently the granite sparkles in the sun. That's not a really good image at all. The new creation's not at all like Aberdeen. <laughs> or Edinburgh. It's glorious. It's glorious. And then verses 22 to the end, let's read them. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? The Lamb's Book of Life and Revelation is a record of all believing people, all people who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation. Is your name written in it? Earlier in John's Gospel, John, the same writer as Revelation, speaks of John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus to come. John the Baptist said this, Behold, the Lamb of God, pointing to Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. How can you be sure that your name is in the Lamb's book of life? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Look at him and cry out to him, have mercy on me. Why? Well, because there is a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son, Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, for sinners slain. When I stand in glory, I will see his face, and there I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. Eternity, 
the real world. Please don't wait till you get there to find that out. Please respond to Jesus' offer of salvation now. Where's the hard evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? That is the message of Easter. It's not about eggs and rabbits and baby lambs and spring. We know that, even though we do have some little eggs and some cakes for you afterwards. It's not about a wonderful example in Jesus, though he is. It's not about comfort in the tough journey through life. It's about resurrection from the dead and the resurrection of the earth. And that's a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the message of the resurrection. We thank you that Jesus lives and that because he lives, we can live in him forever. Help us to ponder these things, to consider them with the seriousness they deserve. Help us not to leave it. Help us not to procrastinate. Help us not to play with the fire of an eternal hell. Help us to believe. Help us to call out to the Lamb of God, have mercy. And for those of us who have, grant to us that deep, deep assurance to know that even as we sit here facing uncertainty and sickness and illness and death and crying and mourning and pain and all manner of stuff, you will make us new and you will make all things new. For those, Lord, on our hearts who we would love to see these truths, we pray that you would open their eyes. For Jesus' sake.